Jackson the Cat. Episode 5, Robinson, Part 2. Section the First But dude, literally, what is the issue? I heard this in a tone of rancor penetrating through the haze of my sleep. The voice stemmed from junk. The issue being none, but that we have a far more pressing concern regarding Krugley's investigating than any arraignment to a poor, lost, wandering dullard. Jackson. Why would you say he's a dullard? Junk said. It's obvious he's not, but why wouldn't we spend more time trying to actually talk to him and find out how we could get our city out of this mess instead of just assuming we can't? You can see that in the recounting of these singular events, I've run out of pages in my initial journal, separate from the notebook of scientific observations. But luckily, I've brought a second blank book with me into which I can pick up the thread. While the heated argument went on, I heard clattering and clanking as Motley moved about the kitchen. It is a waste of time, said the ravaged voice. Yeah, but looking into a problem, admittedly an interesting problem, but still not the large-scale issue here, about some money from a miniature shop being stolen isn't a waste of time? Junk cried. When you have to admit, Jack, said Motley, normally it's not outstandingly easy to convince you to participate in these investigative problems. Dude, you're only interested because... I emerged to see the face of Junk halting mid-sentence interrupting herself as she was clearly assailed with a displeasing thought. I mean, do you not want to get out of Franzia? The kitchen noises ceased. Motley gazed at Jackson, who stood in the middle of the room. His head was bent so that the brim of his hat obscured the eyes. What is your impetus, Junk? Dude, do you know how many innovations in design for Hackneys are going on outside the city, and I can't see it because we've been trapped for however many years it's been? Three. Yeah, three, she said. More. The ways we crash them are, you know, good, but they're limited. And not to mention all the other congregations for lovers of adult tag and triple T hide-and-seek that none of us- Aha! And thus is revealed your actual interest. So what if it is? Junk said. Why would you not- A knock at the door. Motley answered and a voice from the other side apologized for coming by so early. It's eight. I gotta go. Have to work on a Sunday to get in under the deadline on this upside-down broom collision test. And gotta take my lunch early today, Junk said. That's right, said Motley. You're meeting Biddleston to finalize the plot outline. Yup, said Junk. Sighed. All right, see ya. She looked at Jackson and muttered, Sorry to get mad, it's just... Complex, Jackson said. The door closed as Junk departed and the new interloper stepped in. I chose to enter the room, I'd been observing all of this from around the corner, where I observed our latest guest to be none other than Hattie Braid, sister and co-proprietor to Johnlith. She explained she'd come to see Jackson at his place of work in the government buildings, but that his superior, Raphael, had said they'd still be home, Jackson most likely filching breakfast from Motley. He probably grumbled, said Motley, that we aren't punctual, even though we still get done everything we need to. He slammed down a skillet of eggs. To want us coming in on a Sunday is horrid, and I'd like to see Raphael get in on time if he actually had a nutritious breakfast. He just wants all of us to live on nothing but coffee and pepper flakes, like he does so we can be skinny and destitute. The Molly Cat, ignoring this, spoke directly to Jackson to explain that John her brother, wasn't overly concerned about the loss since so much money came into the shop and that Enforcer Krugley had not found any new leads. 
Had Jackson discovered anything, since he seemed to take such an interest in this case? Have you found the clerk? Jackson asked her, slowly. Who? Jackson Cat sat on the arm of the settee. He gave her a distressing gaze with the left eye preponderating. The young servant of the shop, he said. Mart Evesdale, I believe. Right. Had he spoke the word and blinked. I should think you might yearn to ask of him, considering he has been missing ever since the funds have been gone. He isn't missing. It was strange, but I sensed something akin to torment, like from a checked, long habit lingering in her features and tone. Has Krugly booked him? Motley said. Something in Hattie's visage seemed to clue him that he hadn't spoken aright, so he amended, not that there'd be reason to. No, she said. I already spoke with him. Evesdale or Krugly? Jackson asked. Either. First I spoke with Mart. You found Mart Evesdale? cried Motley. I did. He's not in a good way with his father and isn't at home. Ah, said Jackson, although under his tone I thought I detected something less than sure. Where was he? Motley asked. How'd you find him? Hattie answered, he's not in a good way with his father. She said, Mart explained that yesterday he was at the doll bank, breaking a 100 for the till, and then when he came back he saw what had happened. And then did not immediately tell an officer, finished Jackson. It was a mistake, but he was afraid we'd fire him for leaving the shop unguarded, so he's young. She stared as if into the vacancy for a moment, though already grown. Regardless, he ran off. Motley stared. Wow. Idiot, said Jackson. Perfect for making himself look the suspect. Hattie had not sat. Yeah, she said, abstracted. Her senses restored, she added. It was a poor choice. But I passed all this on to Krugly, the officer, and he checked the records at the doll bank. There was a registration from the Franzia Deposit Insurance Corporation, time-stamped to 10.58 a.m., and dated March 8th, under the name of Mart Evesdale, breaking a 100 Franzen note into a variety of smaller bills. It's true, said Krugly, who came in through the door. Hey, hey, Motley greeted, tossing him a spoonful of egg, which the enforcer caught. A fine taste to stop my misery he said. Seems I'm here to give repeat of what Hattie Braid's already told you. Only so long as scrambled eggs are treated like sport for the subhuman, said Jackson. Worse before afternoon, then, said Krugly, meaning Jackson, apparently. Hattie's given it right. Checked it all at Doll Bank myself. The sand-colored cat scrutinized the dark-colored Molly. You're here, then? Hattie looked at the ground. He looked at her and at Jackson and at Motley, eating directly from the skillet. To Hattie, he cried, Police, not enough. Well, the Jackson and Motley reputation does precede us, said Motley. You know that's not true, said Krugly. You're the town gossip and dear old Jackson is, well, the town problem, Jackson said. Right. Well, suit yourselves, said Krugly, though I suspected his professional pride had been a mite wounded. It is a worthy cause to unweave. Yeah, now it is. Junk grumbled to me about this last night. What's got you so keen on it, then? Addressing the smoke-colored ruffian. Yeah, said Motley, stepping into the room. I have to concede, usually it takes some motive of potionery, or, in our last case, pure spite, to get you on a- Very kind, Motley, Jackson shouted, to refer to last month's errand in such explicit terms, with certain participants in our midst. Oh, you mean your reason for the footlight thing? Motley stopped chewing the remainder of his egg. I told them all about it. Jackson actually turned fully around to face Motley. Even with the strange feline distortions, 
The face's store of human feeling was clear. I had no idea what they were talking about, but he turned to Krugly, who gave a quick, slightly embarrassed nod, then turned away. They didn't mind, Jack, said Motley. It's not like they were surprised. At which he looked at the floor and crumbs beneath his boots, then with utter haste darted out of the room. The door slammed behind him. Oh boy, Motley rested the skillet. Jack? Jack? Through the doorway, he called down the gloomy air and said, Shit, and departed as well. I walked on into the street, gazing at the sights of the morning concourse. As the scenes of over-large cat things going about to start the day at a coffee house or place of business, I saw a shop owned evidently by a family called the Plastics, who, I'd learn, sold crude oak ice boxes, nicknamed here Freezers. As the cat things bustling to this or anywhere fell about all around me, I was struck with a remembrance of Tupenia, or the vulgar city, or even, though it shocked me, to peer it. The Bog Barrens, my worst home, on the days at least when it was slightly less desolate. Weary from my travel and dazed from these late undergoings, which perforce bound me to, for the better I think, novelty and strangeness, Blankness that is new and not stale, I believe I wrote. I regardless was blindsided at the introduction of two things as I stood looking at the city in the morning. First, that there could be something so familiar in all these bizarre creatures and mores, so different in appearance and bearing from what I knew, and yet cast into much the same patterns and delineations. The same despair, the woe, the same general burthening of hope, come where it would. I had seen that in the room I was just standing in, and it was what I had, without quite knowing it, recognized in Gethard Jackson, within minutes of having heard him speak. And the second thing that astonished me was that not only did any spark of recognition of such things as I had seen in my own life of the Bog Barons render more familiar and true the happenstances of Franzia, the strange new place, but that it rendered more familiar and true the happenstances of the Bog Barons, my own so-called home, which shouldn't have needed familiarizing at all. And yet, seeing any trace of it here in Franzia did it. So the compliment, you see, worked like an engine and went both ways. And I knew in that moment that this was very closely related to the line. Come on, then. I was startled from meditating to hear Krugly wandering up behind me. Could be you'll get a rise out of seeing young Evesdale. I thought I would. So, filled with warmth and sun, cascading as never before within me, we journeyed to the cloudy and fog-riddled day toward the spot where, evidently, Hattie had said the young cat Mart Evesdale might engage us. Having you along might rightly be a good distraction, then, said Krugly. You know, an outside freak for him to gaze at, no offense, and get his mind off the cop, giving him the queries. We reached the top of a tall hill, where sat, under the cast of some odious bearing, a young, perhaps teenaged feline, my clues for age were not easily obtained, as I said, with his knees tucked up somewhat to the chin. Are you Evesdale? The young cat with a black stripe down the back looked at us. Thought it likely you'd have a question or two for this one here, said Krugly. Mark glanced over at me confused. One who's come out from the outside. The young cat's mouth opened. Personally, I think he's a little short of a set. Still thinks we're cats and all. Evidently, though, a bit more sane than the others. Go on, ask off. Krugly winked. Apparently, this was meant to disarm the young man and make him feel less that he were being interviewed and more that I was the subject of an interview from him. 
My shoulders squared, and I nodded firmly at Evesdale. Oh. He made a solitary sound. After a time of marking distance, we were at the outskirts of the city, not far from the invidious fog. He looked at me again and queried, What? What's it like out there? I told him all I could. Huh. With this, he lost interest in his environs. Scanning the foregoing paragraphs, I have noticed a mistake. I'll leave it uncorrected and go into what it was shortly. Not far from what I can recall in my pre-Circ era, Krugly joined. As a young'un had to encounter loads of odd characters, all of whom were older than me and of age. Krugly's paw fumbled with the bag he'd been carrying, containing far more than one deck of playing cards. He had made plain that this was some kind of backup. Turns out you stay in Franzia, he said, and those grown people can make you do things you don't want anyway, eh? At this, Mark glanced in full distress and gazed in terror at the undulating landscape. Especially fathers, said Krugly. From there, Mark's mouth closed. With a pensive brow, he looked at the fog, eyes affrighted. The mistake I shall leave uncorrected is, some paragraphs above, I didn't refer to Evesdale as a cat, but as a young man. Krugly, with some great alacrity and no regard for the state of his breeches, sat himself on the crest. His back was to the younger feline, and I sat as well. Any further burning cues for the foreigner to A? Evesdale appeared to be considering something of hideous import. He nodded and said, Yeah, what do people over there, um, want to know about your past? Where? Your home, the Bog Barons. I thought of her, in the Chamberlands, west of the Swale on the Green. Without doubt, that was an exception. Nobody ever cared of anything there. He stared for a long time and... With a swallow, sprang to his feet and darted for the fog. Shit, said Krugly, and dashed after him as I, composing from my stupor, made haste to follow. Evesdale, he called. Young lad, may is outlawed entering the fog, you know? Mart hesitated at the edge of the mist, but then pressed himself forward, disappearing in the nutmeg-scented haze. No, 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 the enforcer said, and tearing off his jacket, added aside. Seabid, look, then plunged into the screen. I was soon about to go in myself, despite all fears, when I heard a scuffle and Krugly and the young cat returned, looking extremely worse for wear. They coughed and were down on their knees, the eyes red and bits of fur singed off. It didn't feel so bad, said Mart, when you were pulling me back. He retched. But the pain, his voice was terribly strained. When I was going away from you was rancid, Krugly said. Besides that, he gagged. Horror of tripping on them washers people dump as they please out there. They'll throw that trash, but if they had simply set foot... Ugh, stupid young ass. In that moment, I should have chased for help, comforted them, but frankly, I was too lost in selfish horror. I thought of what must have been on the succeeding page of the volume Motley pulled away before I should turn to it. The room of deadly news in the library. Something in that horrid vapor had a property which has trapped all perpetually. One could run toward Franzia, but never from. It suddenly made so much sense. I collapsed in despair on the ground as the two invalids looked over to pat my chest, shake me into sense. Of course, I saw those migrants into Franzia who'd come before, such as Johansson, were never seen again simply because 
moments after they re-entered the fog to exit the city, they expired. Unlike Evesdale, they did not have Krugly to pull them back. I gazed up at the sky, reeling, realizing I should be here forever. Section the Second I shall bounce it off you as perhaps the most neutral springboard I can find. I stirred. The familiar ravaged voice had spoken. Ah, regaining consciousness. In the leather shalon, a kinda one, though with supporting back at angle of forty-five degrees, so one may semi-recline, the profile of the smoke-colored cat under wide brim loomed by a paw, which struggled to lace a boot that was not on his hind paw or my foot or anyone else's. It had been, I must say, hoped you'd remain in slumber, induced by shock, so that I might have a truly neutral springboard, one who wouldn't chat. I asked him who hoped this. He made a gesture while fumbling over the bootlace, and I comprehended immediately. After a moment, I spoke. Why did I have such odd dreams? Ah, Blanche, you're not as slow as I'd prefer. For various reasons. It came upon me that I was in a maroon leather chalon also, half-bent as Jackson's, and we were seated in some dimly lit coffee house. Not the one we'd watched John Lith's pageant at. Jackson set the boot down. Rightly you've intuited that the somnolent visions you have experienced were far from the mere result of shock by the fog. He sat slumped in an awkward manner, not utilizing the slope of the chair. So exhausted was I that I could do nothing else. I do know that what happened with the Enforcer, Krugly, and the young cat, Evesdale, was not a dream. I looked at the cafe. Patrons, otherwise empty, quiet. But what you have seen in actual sleep was. He pulled out a vial of odd orange liquid, tossed it in my palm. George. What? The potion's honorific. George. It induces dreams. He craned to a painting of a castle on the wall. Forgive me. I asked why he'd done this, and he made answer that he'd thought it best after the calamity I'd undergone, which he heard of via Krugly. To test the tincture as well, he confessed. It's evident in the bend of your queries and manner that its purpose has been effected. Wouldn't you wish to know, I asked, what I have dreamed of? He gazed. You'd not wish to tell me. This is true. How fares Evesdale? I asked. Ah, the inexperienced whelp. Fair enough. Krugly's not arrested the chit since he's been forced to take both the boy and his own person to a licensed healer to stave off wounds of the fog. I looked in despair at the sign on the glass. N-A-E-J-E-F-A-C. Each letter flipped. Café Jean. Jackson continued. He has said he'll assuage them all into a turn of hand and foot. Of what? I had heard mention of hand and foot before but hadn't figured out its significance. Jackson said it would take too long to explain. Apropos of nothing, he added, I am missing work. I apologize. Nay. He produced a cigarette and didn't ignite. Raphael wishing us to come in on a Sunday to resort the meeting minutes by name, his idea, he claims, is bunk. And since it seems that Franzia's peculiar taint of stranding may sometime shortly come to an end. It begs the question of how any of it actually matters. He leaned back. If it matters at all. We're all inclining to that now.
I looked at the cat's left eye from my view. It seems that Junk suspects you of not wishing your village to be free from this curse it's had on it. I added with vehemence, I certainly can't understand how anyone might hold such a wish. How could you, considering your additional share in the circumstances? I nodded, then feigned to level my gaze at him. After he went to the front and returned with what was deemed an espresso for himself, he said, Everyone here is familiar with the ill-inclined disposition I harbor toward those about me. I offered him a skeptical glance. It is true, he said. You, Mr. Carter Blanche, are on the scene at a time where I have mildly improved in my relations with other individuals. He looked at the Demitas. Though why Motley should go on obliterating this by telling the others of my rank sabotaging from last February, I... He halted, incensed. Took a sip, composed himself, said, And so yet, that is likely to fall apart also. No matter. He laughed. Jackson seemed open, yet free of hope. The brief window you've come to endure when I have, dare I say, friends in my life. I'd seriously propose, he said, that this only came to pass because everybody was so used to my loathsome manner. Time to adjust. That is just Gethard Jackson. Even Motley's gang, before they knew me, due to reputation preceding. I took up the cup and gave it a curious sniff, then put it down. It did not make any sense, I suggested, that Motley merely sharing aspects of Jackson's acerbic nature would undermine his standing with friends, especially if already they were used to it. True, he said. Yet, this is still beyond the point. Truly, they needn't see so deep inside of me. And if that is the case, I said, coming to the heart of the matter, which Motley and I had discussed, why do you strive to see so deep inside of the others? He meditated on this for some time. This question I shall ignore. However, as to your previous query as to why I should wish Franzia to never be free from its entrapment, I answer with the beetle in the barroom. What? The metaphor, in fact, gives one an idea. Come. He let us out, complaining the leather oddly irritated his skin, which was apparently of a particularly sensitive nature. Did they not feel the fur all over them? Did they deny it? We came to what I immediately deduced to be a much baser establishment than the previous. Near the door, he said, It was upon interviewing the second former clerk for Portage that I hit upon a different tack. Instead of using them for intel upon Johnlith and Hattie Braid, Explore further why all the previous employees had been so well-versed in miniatures, so experienced, and then why hire someone like Evesdale, who wasn't? He looked about the room. It was a place for the enjoying of ale or spirits. Yes, a personal connection can be inferred, perhaps via the estranged paterfamilias. We came up to the counter. Jackson whispered, Also, it couldn't help but be noticed Hattie's wistful longing when she said young Evesdale was already grown. He looked about, spoke lower. You do not say this unless you've gone through the dizzying experience of watching someone grow up. Why might she be watching? I sat next to Jackson and drew notice, but this was notice that was quickly dropped. Attend, he said. They've already come used to you. I suppose if the one you all call Chauncey was making boast of my arrival to all as soon as possible. Jackson, attending a glass of beer which he'd ordered with extra bread, seemed to make thought at this, as soon as is possible. 
At the end of the bar, a cat with two black stripes down the back ordered another spirit. We looked his way. Thine blessing is mine, Jackson said. What? Hold. Jackson walked over toward the stranger. You're a painter, yes? He nodded eagerly. Yes, indeed I am. Then I have queries for you as relates to the materials in your paints. The stranger smiled. You're the potioneer, aren't you? Jackson made eye contact with me a moment. Correct. And, uh, you already know, I see, of the latest entrant of lunacy from the world beyond our town. He gestured toward me. The stranger looked over and back again at Jackson, appearing to grow increasingly excited. Well, you must be seeing if there's anything he knows about how he can get out of this dilemma, even if he is a little half-crocked, he said sotto voce. Yes, said Jackson. Still, he may bring in some bits of material. You need to clear away that fog. The cat with two black stripes moved close to his companion. From the outside, I mean. I jumped. A large and lurid beetle had scampered by me and went around the rather lacking piña colada I'd ordered. As it traversed across the countertop, Jackson ignored it, and the stranger simply brushed it off as he continued, I can tell you, there are some wonderful bits of scenery outside of this town I would love to paint. Jackson nodded. The other said, You know, I have always suspected that this whole problem with the Cirques has been potion-related, and I'd imagine you're just the guy to help us out. Certainly there are materials I'd like to gather beyond our little hamlet. Sure, right. And besides... Here, Jackson gulped down his drink, and the other cat did the same. Mightn't one wish to evade indiscretions of the feminine type? Oh, the stranger looked down to the counter satirically. You don't even need to tell me about that. Two more drinks in, and a third one in the offing. Jackson, after tossing another look, and with something like the air of a duty unpleasant, though necessary, told a story I daren't repeat here, about accidentally spilling a potion that turns what it touches blue and frigid, on a particularly sensitive area of, well, a compromised person who had been in his chambers in a compromising position. Oh my god, said the stranger, laughing. You know, there was this one I knew. His voice got low and confidential, though upon seeing, excepting the bartender, that the only others in the room were Jackson, the known reprobate, and I, the foreigner and the freak. He went on boldly. She always wanted, you know, in the, uh, in the horizontal department, had to constantly turn into a game with points. You know, she'd ask me a question, and if I could answer while she was doing X, Y, Z, then I'd score 10 points or vice versa. What a feisty one that was. I also note, Jackson said, eager to move the subject onward, that as to the termagant in my own indiscretions, she... What was that game lady's name? The stranger said. Loved games. Maybe it was Bunk or Dunk or May- As to my own termagant, Jackson said, loudly and anxiously cutting him off. She moved on to a one even less dignified than a civil servant and potioneer by taking up briefly with the now pecunious John Braid, entertainer, in quotes, and purveyor of the Miniature Museum on Robinson. No kidding, said the other. This surprised him. You know, I actually had a little something going on with between us fellas. That guy's sister, uh, Maddie, I think. Ah, this was way, way back. A million years ago when I was young, he said, in a tone of satire and the smallest grace note of rage. Before I, you know, kind of got saddled down and all that, I would paint her or, well, you know, I said I would. And oh my God, 
He got close, and Jackson appeared to have a difficult time not turning aside. The things these women'll do for you if you tell them you're painting their portrait. My God. He leaned back, sate with nostalgia. Of course, though, she left my ass because I only drew her as a tiny little thumbnail sketch. Never got around to the painting. What are you going to do? Jackson drank and drank and drank and said, I think we're going to leave. He paid. What of it for little meaningless incidents in our history if we... He swallowed. He was loud and his voice broken. Have fuel for the fire for our potions and painting. He said it with such aggression that even the stranger noticed. Oh, uh, are you all right? Oh, yes. He left the bar, and after I gave the astonished bartender the pineapple I'd been carrying, closely followed. I was indeed mistaken about Hattie's wistful noting of young Evesdale's growth. It didn't arise from watching him grow. He staggered and my arms had to prevent his fall, but from not watching him grow and receiving the shock that her former lover's son could be nineteen years of age. What? Now, he said, gait unsteady, we've gained what's needed from the father of Mart Evesdale. I think we can thus finally put the mystery to a close. I looked back, stunned at his revelation. The stranger with the two black stripes was Mart Evesdale's father? Did he mention he had a son? Did the cat know that his son was in trouble with the law, or at the very least, under intense suspicion? Was he so utterly in his own world? It may have been seen, Jackson said, slurring his words, that there scurried a beetle in the barroom. It's been an inhabitant for many years. I noted that you jumped in fear upon its arrival, while Evesdale, the elder, and I barely paid mine. It is because we have grown used to the insect. He leaned on me and regained balance. All are so used to it to know it to be so low that they'll pay it little mind and will be unsurprised if it should dirty a countertop or sully a card game. And everyone will happily confide to the beetle their horrid, horrid deeds. He gasped. <sighs> because it is simply an insect. Yet how many times, Jackson turned, eyes yellow, imploring, should Franzia be free and open once more? How often could the beetle survive? The inevitable shrieks of fear and disgust and jumping issued from the newcomers who have not had time to grow used to its... His spirits sagged. Presence and rotten instincts. I looked at Jackson for a long moment afraid he was going to vomit or worse, when Krugly, the enforcer, looking very alarmed, ran up toward us. Despite the injuries, his eyes seemed alive with excitement, and he carried a bottle. Section the Third If anything can restore the Krugly pride of my Friday night's raking over the coals, hand and foot-wise, it's this. Krugly's voice, hoarser than normal, echoed. We were in the lobby, a dark orange, of a theater. The three of us stood on the ground floor because the enforcer thought it a convenient place to meet since no show was on and the purveyors of the place were quite well used, it seemed, to Krugly and Co. coming by. Don't you know, he continued, it came to me late, but funny it is that John Lith knows the man who runs both the Rightway Cafe, host of his musical act, and the Tingston. I said, yes. Krugly seemed surprised that I was responding and not his friend, 
but this latter, while evidently listening, also had his eyes toward the double doors, which led to the auditorium. Well, uh, anywho, he cleared his throat and went on. <clears throat> Point being, Tingston, as you know, swear the shop actually has an account, not the bloody doll, the rival bank, farther away from the vicinity. Well, he had to go in there, Junk's voice said, behind us. So you guys go in. Taking a long lunch, Bid's not feeling too good. She strolled toward us. Whoa, Krug, you okay? The enforcer waved it off, and then Junk turned to Jackson, who still seemed in a daze. Honestly, it is true I have found myself thinking about this mystery, even in spite of what maybe I was saying this morning. Jackson blinked. Yeah, no, the ins and outs are fascinating. Honestly, I didn't know before the Cirques that I thought mysteries were interesting, but now I'm all about them, you know? And it's all gonna change, she said. I've been so eager thinking about all the games and stuff I've missed that I haven't thought of all the fun stuff that's been invented here in the actual city we're stuck in. You know, like this thing I'm doing with BID or my modifications on H&F, that stuff. I have to admit that none of that might have ever happened if it wasn't for the, you know, circumstances in the first place. After a moment, she added, There'll be time for the wide world, soon, I'm sure. For now, there's something to enjoy, at least as long as it lasts. Jackson nodded, and then he said, Even as I see that the outcome of last month's incident was a gain, in fact a positive for your gang, I never would have wished for my low motives to be exposed. I am sorry, Jack, said Motley. On entering, by way of explanation, he added, Raphael wanting us to come in on a Sunday is unreasonable. Once I saw Jackson playing hooky, I had to follow suit. Had to try butterfly hunting in town. He shook his net. But when I spotted Junk wandering into the theater, I knew it had to be something even more interesting than an eastern tiger swallowtail. We were silent for a span. I probably shouldn't have told them, Jack, said Motley. I am sorry. But, Junk broke in, how are we supposed to like you if we don't know the shitty parts of you? The smoke-colored cat turned. Like, okay, I didn't like at first that you exposed how I'd been modifying. Cheating, that is, said Krugly. Yeah, whatever, cheating. Sure, I didn't like at first that you exposed how I'd been cheating at the game, but in the end it brought us all closer together. Junk leaned in. Can't you just apply the same logic to yourself? Jackson said nothing. And, irregardless, Krugly gave Jackson Cat a meaningful glance. The gap between what we expect of you and what we accept of you is considerably huge. Jackson said, Motley has instructed to say this, I feel. He did, but truly it's how I feel. All of us, Biddleston, Junk, me. Jackson stood. Don't mean Motley had to go blurting around to us about everything that might have had to do with your motive, Krugly blared heartily. The man's a mouth of stunning loudness he is. From my vantage, I saw the side of Jackson's face turn to half of a smile. Do you guys want to go in, said Junk? It'd be kind of nice to sit down. I think this might have been said for the sake of the party among us with whom effects of intoxication were visible. I thought just the same thing, said he. The Tingston all of a sudden closed on a Saturday, Junk continued. We sat in a scrupulously ornate, empty auditorium. You even couldn't get the money that you lost. Yeah, 
I'll posit, though, that whoever is likely to have known about the sudden change the owner'd make about the new hours, said Krugly, would be someone who knows him and works with him on multiple fronts, then. John Lithbreed, said Junk. Indeed. He doesn't really strike me as the type. There's all types that seem like anything, Krugly said. Did it for the insurance he did, and, here the enforcer commanded a silence. He had his clerk, Evesdale, do it too. What? I was interrogating the poor lad. Going easy, mind you, wanting to let him heal, like I have to do, junk dear. And seeing it's all gone to pot with the fog and the scarring, he let it all out. Young lad says that Saturday morning, about a half hour hereabouts after ten, he's alone in the shop when he gets a note from Johnlith slipped under the door. Very unusual, since the boss hardly ever has anything to say to him, and if he does, it's in person, the normal way. Krugly twisted in his seat so he could recount the tale to every one of us. Note says, you know, lock up the shop and go to the Tingston to break a hundred friends and bill from the till into smaller coins. But as of that Saturday, Motley said, the Tingston was closed. Yes, said Jackson. He looked only at the stage, as if he were imagining all said to him as a folly. Well, Mott, my dear, even though the Tingston was closed yesterday, a Saturday, hardly anyone knew it. Evesdale didn't know that. Krugly leaned forward. But Johnlith, friends with Frederick, the owner of the Rightway Cafe, and the Tingston, knows that. Several of us had become breathless and, as it were, stunned. Here's the note for you. From the bottle, which contained several folded pieces of parchment, Krugly pulled out a note for us to pass around. It was from Johnlith, and said, just as Krugly had specified, though in terms most severe, that this hundred must be broken regardless of obstacle. So, Evesdale gets turned away from Tingston, of course, because it's closed, but not wanting to abjure from the responsibilities, goes to the only other bank in all of Franzia. Krugly stood. The doll. Evesdale breaks the hundred, because obviously the museum doesn't have an account there. He has to register his own personal given and sir, as per the rules of the Franzia Deposit Insurance Corporation. So, establishes an alibi, Junk said, thoughtfully. Krugly nodded. Next, all the bills for the broken hundred in his pocket. He comes back, sees the footprints and the smashed pane of the window, and, under the till, the open vault with 4,000 franzins in gold coin, sitting there, unstolen, and... Krugly held up the bottle. This note. He uncorked it and passed the second piece of paper around to all of us. It said, Hattie would never let me give this to you. Because you've just registered your name at a specific time at the doll, they'll never catch you. Take the gold pieces and get out. Your boss, Jay. Get out, said Junk. Get out how? Presume that he meant get out the museum and, you know, don't show your face here for a day or two. So then, wait, Junk stood. Why did he run then and go missing? It only drew suspicion to him. The sand-colored cat shrugged. I met the chit. He was scared out of his own eyebrows. Pure stupid panic, such as what led to the singeing of mine. He pointed to an area where some fur was burnt and, presumably, he and others under the enchantment thought they were human eyebrows. An intermission. I turned. Jackson, who had said little up to this point, had spoken. His eyes were fixed on the proscenium. It must be known, he cried, his voice less than steady, that the get-out in question had far broader implications than the mere leaving of the shop. Motley stared. 
then was struck. Oh, yes, John Lithbraid was referring to the exiting of Franzia. Which nobody's tried to do, Junk said. I mean, didn't the mayor issue her decree like as soon as the mist appeared? Besides, we've all been too scared ever since the Cirque started. Mart Evesdale, dear Junk, made history today as the first Franzian ever to run into the fog, the enforcer said. Junk started. What? You haven't had the chance to hear yet, and I got historically to be the second, he said. Hence the singeing and scars you remarked on once you came. Oh, fuck, Junk said. The fog is dangerous? I guess we always kind of worried about that instinctually, but to actually know... Junk, in a rush, kicked an empty seat, then sat down, fuming. A paw, perhaps she perceived it like a hand, fell on her shoulder, and she saw it to be Jackson's. I give thanks for what you have mentioned in the lobby. I'm sorry I perhaps resisted the idea of interrogating a means of egress from Franzia, he slurred. It was not due, I assure you, to any sort of potioneer's knowledge of the fog's deleterious effects. I have been evading. He turned to the stage. For reasons personal. Junk nodded while this mingled with her fading anger. But what made you think the note from the miniature guy told Evesdale to run into the fog? The entrance of Carter. My mouth opened. The news of him emerging from the fog, evidently safe and intact, came as we know via Chauncey to the ears of all and sundry in town, minutes after Carter had fallen unconscious at our feet. Rain started falling. And, said Jackson, roughly an hour's time before the robbery. And before the young man had gotten the note? Krugly nodded. Aligns with the testimony from Evesdale, he said. Yes, said Jackson. While Carter's emerging is far from a first in our town's history, anyone entertaining the idea of facilitating another's escape would surely feel emboldened by yet another immigrant passing through the fog. Think, Evesdale is directed not to steal the easier-to-access Franzens from the till, it would be so much less effort, but the gold pieces in the pride-open, vaulted safe. And why not? unless it was expected he should need a currency which works outside of our village. Which gold would surely do, I said. You had said, Krugly, you'd tripped on washers once pulling young Mart from the fog. I had. I imagine it was gold, said Jackson. Evesdale, in a fright, tossed it into the mist, but then himself hesitated, unsure if he could take the last step into the mysterious haze which no Franzian had yet endeavored to do. Okay, said Junk, but then how, when one supposed Johnlith Braid, I have issues with that supposition I'll address further on, when Johnlith, let's say, comes to the edge of town to see any traces of the young man exiting through the mist as he hoped, he instead finds the young man sitting on a hill, not yet running. And then Johnlith, the shit, has his sister arrange a mating between me and the young boy. Krugly said, can't convince the lad to run to the mist, but is so sure of the doll bank alibi, he's confident the young man will withstand questioning from me and still hold up totally innocent. In addition to the fact that Johnlith knew anyone who'd speak with the young Mart Evesdale would not sense the initiative or violence to commit this robbery as it appeared. Jackson leaned in his chair. If he could not have it as he idealized with Mart leaving the scene immediately, 
at least he could convince the young boy to withstand police interrogating, and thus buy him time. Buy Evesdale time, you mean? Junk said. Yes, though John Lith's motives elude me. This is one issue I referred to in parenthetical earlier. So you're saying, Junk said, that, okay, so first, that John Lith, knowing the Tingston, would be surprised closed on a Saturday for the first time. Information privileged to a few due to the right-way cafe connections and all, Krugly added. Right, said Junk. First that, and then John Lith, hearing another person has come out of the fog, those two things gave him, like, the impetus to set his naive employee on this scheme. But, like, why? Precisely. What does not add up, Jackson said, is the idea of John Lith needing pecuniary assistance. The insurance is a small truvy compared to the museum's weekly income. Or him, by stimulating the boy to leave, having any motives of vengeance for Evesdale Sr.'s personal indiscretions toward John Lith's sister, Hattie Braid. Huh? said Motley. Jackson related the questioning of Mart's father at the bar and the uncouth history between him and Hattie that had transpired years before. Oh, Motley said. John Lith simply doesn't seem the type, Jackson concluded. Note, his sister has apparently been miserable four years, as Motley has noted via Biddleston's observations, and the man has proceeded as usual, blithe and unassuaged. And besides, Krugly said, my theorems have built off the invalidity of the six witnesses who heard John Lith crying out, advertising his show for that night, when the clock struck 11am and the window at Portage was smashed. Exactly, said Junk. Well, the enforcer slumped, shamefaced. I admit I'd been hoping the six witnesses were simply wrong. But Jackson, what you've said makes me see it's too weak as a thing to hope. Six witnesses wrong? No. He flung his arms against two adjacent chairs. I'm fucking stumped. Jackson was by all evidence consternated to an extreme. The answer, it seems, could easily be beyond our means, he said. It could be that- No! cried Motley, now his turn to stand. John Lith's had no play. Jackson frowned. Yes? Motley looked at them all, gloating, I thought, and I liked him all the more. You need to pay attention to your poetry. What do you mean? Junk said. Motley cleared his throat. I heard a thousand blended notes, while in a groove I sate reclined. In that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind. The rain increased. And? That was the stanza chosen for the miniature model of Wordsworth's lectern in that poetry display. I recalled it. Which, I add, had several lecterns, each with extremely exiguous open book written in a different hand for every poet. Motley grinned. You have to have amazing penmanship skills to imitate a different style of handwriting, especially at such a minute scale. So, naturally, the person who can do that could also be herself an excellent hand at forgery, Jackson said. Awkwardly, at that moment, the director for the theater came in and said not to mind her, but that she'd be testing the colored gaslights for the stage from the back but that we should just continue to talk as if she weren't there. Oh! Junk cried. I used to play these tabletop games with, like, small soldier figures that you'd paint, just like other people we knew used to play. Motley looked up at a mural in the ceiling. 
but sometimes we'd try to make intimidating footprints through the battlefield, Junk said, and for that, we'd cover the small fake boots or whatever in mud and then smear them around to make the prints look bigger than they actually were, which always just made it look like the soldier had a drunken and unsteady gait. Fuck, Krugly said. Course. None of the boots, though, said Motley, would be large enough for the footprints we saw, unless they were a display featuring giants, I said. Everyone looked at me. I remember because the idea of giants in this town I had just come upon affrighted my senses, but each miniature museum giant should be, as it were, carrying a size boot big enough for a smallish man. And, you know, said Junk, made to seem even bigger, even if drunker, by smearing from side to side. Oh, said Motley, and now I remember seeing a sign that proclaimed the giants were given a fresh change of clothing every day. It'd be an easy opportunity to, in changing their clothes and boots, muddy up an old pair, Junk said. Jackson had his gaze set on the stage once more. An impetus of a kind begins to emerge from a woman who wished for a portrait and got only a miniature. The director put a piece of colored glass in front of a light so the stage turned one deep green as a familiar voice said, and not a good one either. We turned. A dark cat in dress simple but stately emerged down the aisle and took an empty seat next to Jackson. I saw you come in, she said, and there's nothing in particular I want to hide anymore, considering I almost sent an innocent young boy to die in a fog. She turned to the enforcer, who was looking on alert and yet despondent to be so. Thank you for saving him, Krugly. Yeah, sure thing, Hattie, he said. The director blew out the sconce lights, and everything was concentrated to a single flickering beam at the center of the stage, blue with spots and pink. All of us, I think, found ourselves gazing at it and imagining what was told to us as some kind of play, unconstrained by fetters of time or space. I saw it as that hollow log through which I had gazed hopelessly and even hopefully at the remains of my life. One day he just came in, Hattie told us. I'd heard Robert, I'm talking about Robert Evesdale, had a son, but I hadn't met him before. Maybe I'd avoided it. There he was, though, looking at the miniatures, sullen and totally indifferent to what I did. And before I knew what I was doing, I just offered Mart a job. He looked at me for a long time like it was a trap, but we'd just lost our last employee and we did need someone. He took it. He was eager, you know, for some kind of independence from his home. I worried John Lith would make a problem about how inexperienced he was, especially when comparing to all our previous employees. But my brother proved himself, once more, to be totally in his own world, and did not care. The Ministry Museum was all my idea, anyway. He just came along for the ride. The stage took on a brighter shade of blue. Mart started confiding in me. What could I do, turn him aside? said Hattie. At first I felt uncomfortable because so much had to do with his dad, his dad who talked more and more of just up and leaving, and Robert was about to when the cirques started. Jackson nodded, claws crossed under the renegade spotlight swirling off the stage. But now, Hattie went on, Mart wished he himself could leave, of course. Over the next three or so years he worked for us, but living with his dad was getting worse and worse and I couldn't convince him to move out, get his own apartment, even though Lord knows we started paying him enough. 
Eventually, it just seemed like Mart would need something more extreme. Every day, he got angrier, and I realized that boy could not spend another year in the same town as his dad. Motley studied the mural overhead. So, when I heard, through John Lith, that the owner of the Tingston, Frederick, was thinking he might start closing on Saturdays, said Hattie, but he didn't want to announce the change so as to avoid backlash, I started to get, well, my idea. Hearing that another outsider had come in yesterday morning just made it seem all the more safe. That was the final spur. Stage a robbery. It came slowly. Beforehand, send sweet, unknowing Mart to the Tingston, whose doors would be shut, so he'd have to break a hundred at the doll instead and thereby have his alibi because of the Franzia Deposit Insurance Corporation timestamp. He comes back, sees the note, takes the gold, and me and John Lith collect at least half our losses from the insurance. She raised her arms and dropped them, as if it were the beginning, middle, and end of a fairy tale. And even once he leaves Franzia, nobody ought to suspect him. I mean, they'll assume he just left because, one, he'd been talking about leaving for years now. Why shouldn't the first Franzian to try to leave after the Star of the Cirques be a young, discontented teen? And, two, that he must have simply been afraid. His boss would blame him for neglecting the store and causing it to get robbed. Just the actions of a stupid but provably innocent kid. Here she stopped. You want to know something so fucking unfair? Jackson blinked, but kept his gaze on the curtains. Even though I was the one who hired him, even though I was the one who Mart confided in, he still thought of Johnleth like the boss. So those notes had to be forged as coming from him. I blame Daddy for that one, she muttered. Why didn't you just give Mart some gold pieces? Junk asked, quietly, if Johnleth wasn't going to care. I tried, said Hattie. Pride was not gonna let him. He refused, and then he refused, and then he refused. So I decided a note from his real boss, right, John Lith, and on top of that, the fear of the law might give him the push. Now the light had turned green and low. It did. Her voice turned ragged and hoarse. Not enough. When I went to check toward the border and see any evidence it had worked, if Mart had actually gotten out of Franzia, there the kid was, sitting on the hill, brooding. I came up. I was so furious. I asked him where the gold was. He stared and turned just deathly pale, and started explaining John Lith had set him up and ordered him to take the gold and leave Franzia, what Mart had been talking about doing all the time anyway, and... And this... I don't know why I did this. I just popped Mart's illusion. Like a balloon, you know? Something about all I'd done, this this thing that came from revenge and love or something, so I didn't know what was what. I couldn't stand he didn't know. I told him. I told him I'd forged the notes. John Lith had nothing to do with it. I wanted him to get out of Franzia. Take the gold. Go. She whispered. And the look he gave me was utter confusion, and it was there for a split second, but I saw it. Just total disgust. And it just hit me. Yeah, Hattie, of course. He doesn't understand. From his perspective, I am just some crazy woman who is trying to manipulate his life for no conceivable reason. 
He doesn't know about me and his dad. He doesn't know about any of it. He's a kid. I had convinced myself I was helping Mart in his story, but I was just trying to play out mine. Well, you won't have to worry about that anymore. The director, startled, knocked off the spotlight and quickly scrambled to relight the sconces. We all saw Ross, the other enforcer, who'd just spoken, standing in the back before quickly approaching Hattie with a grin and handcuffs. Hey, Ross, Krugly said, glaring. What brings you here? A witness saw you going into the Clydugan, so I came in just in time to hear Hattie Braid give that beautiful confession. Good work, sir. He snatched her wrist as she choked back a sob. Krugly, looking at the manacle and over at the stage, swallowed, then said, Ross, hold on, slow down. Why? We got her. Krugly swallowed once more and said, Never would have thought you'd have such a poor ear for theatrics. Ross halted. What? You don't see the colorful lights and the fact the director of the Clydungans here in the back? Krugly pointed. Hattie here was pitching to the director a theatrical production inspired by the harrowing events of yesterday. The director seemed herself surprised at this. Krugly waved his paws satirically. Never heard, I suppose, of channeling one's anxieties through art. Ross lowered a claw and the other manacle hung there lamely off Hattie's trembling wrist. Yeah, Junk said. Honestly, I thought it was a pretty good story. What? Ross growled. I thought it was divine, Motley said, grabbing his whiskers in ecstasy. You actually adhered to the unities. Yeah, honestly, ten out of ten, Junk said. A tale most becoming, said Jackson. What? Ross stamped. If she was pitching that to the director, then what are you all doing here? Well, I don't know if Krugly's told you, but me and his sister-in-law are getting involved in storytelling, Junk said. You take inspiration where you can get it. And us and Meville there are old friends, he said, gesturing to the utterly perplexed director. She lets us in whenever we please due to our hand-and-footlights history. Ross backed away, horrified, infuriated. Is this all true? He said to the director. This was a pitch for a show? It was, said Krugly. Meville, what'd you think? I, I think it might be a little convoluted, she said, but compelling. Ross turned away from the molly in disgust. So who stole the gold pieces? There was a keen tension which settled over the room, as nobody seemed to have an answer for this, until I stood up. I did. Ross gawked at me. What? Wait, is that what you've been investigating this whole time? I said. Oh, I only took the gold to feed to the pangendrums in the fog, I added, trying to sound particularly of a nervous disposition. Gold to them tastes yummy and filling. The assistant enforcer's teeth champed on an imagined target. When did, when did this happen? Oh, Motley said, I see. When Carter emerged from the fog that morning, making Chauncey run to town to tell everyone, that's why Carter ran off and then came back to steal gold to feed to his imaginary panjandrums, or could be real-life fog ghosts. What? I was so affrighted when I came to town, I said, that I ran into your museum where tiny things are grown by tiny cats and tiny little people who have visited me many times before and smashed the window to frighten the tiny giants lest they devour tiny portions of me and pry open the safe to take gold and feed it to my panchandrums. I screwed up my eyes. What do you mean imaginary? I said to Motley, feigning enormous offense. Yeah, Junk said. It's true. 
Well, except for his delusions, those are obviously false. But he came out of the fog, then Chauncey ran to tell the news, then this poor lunatic Carter here ran into town while we stood there not knowing what to do, and ran back 50 or so minutes later and, and, well, you know, Motley, and tossed something into the fog, he supplied. Oh yeah, that's right, Junk said. I forgot. What the fuck were you all doing there during that 50 minutes that this, this lunatic was in town, Ross demanded. Butterfly hunting. Again, Motley waved his net, and what Carter tossed after returning from town must have been the gold pieces, he said. We didn't put two and two together, Ross, when you came up and said a robbery had happened. Didn't see it must have been Carter Blanche. I expect those tummies will be growling for more. This was I. Ross looked at Jackson, who said, Ah. It seems I am not the expert solver of mysteries. I thought myself to. He stifled a belch. Become. These jackanapes have figured it faster than I. This ought to embarrass Krugly and myself, he said. Does it not? Krugly returned Jackson's pointed gaze and then met the eye of the other enforcer. It's all true, Ross, he said. I'm embarrassed I didn't figure it out sooner. Ross, at this point in a state of white-hot rancor, stammered, unable to summon a proper phrase. So, he finally spat, arrest Carter! He's a thief! Yeah, and who cares, Krugly said. Far as we know from where he emerged from, they don't even have ideas of stealing a theft. He's a loon, the enforcer cried, and besides that, a foreigner. Ross glared, astonished at this bald conspiracy beyond his means to disprove. He turned to Krugly. I used to look up to you. Then vacated. Eh, price you pay, Krugly said. No kidding, said Motley. Hattie, stunned and bereft with gratitude, thanked us and admitted she had been prepared to face full consequences when she saw, through the window of the police station, Mart Evesdale weeping and singed from the fog. I caused all of this. It's over, Krugly said. Go back to the museum now. Sod off with Johnlith and Robert and Mart Evesdale and all these other worthless males. And don't be so fucking manipulative. He added, Oh, and a message for you from the younger Evesdale. He quits. Hattie nodded, then, keeping her paws in the pockets of her overcoat, walked. It's something interesting, Jackson said. She has kept a manacle on her wrist. Section the Fourth we sat now in the upper level of a lobby in the forementioned theater. Apparently, Motley, Jackson, Krugly, Junk, and another met here regularly for a game. Officer Krugly. We rose and bent fast over the gold railing. Down below, at the ground floor of the lobby, stood Mart Evesdale, the young cat who had told Krugly everything he knew, except, of course, the solution. He looked up at us and opened his mouth. Officer Ross said you'd be here. He seemed r really mad. He'll get over it. Oh, Mart said. His fur was singed painfully in a number of places. I... maybe I shouldn't have quit. I... I don't really know what to do. I... You got savings, don't you? said Krugly. Yeah. Rent a place. The enforcer lifted a hand from the rail, emphasizing. You break off from the old fuck without leaving Franzia and plunging into a flesh-eating fog. He leaned across the balustrade. Forget all the things Hattie may have told you in a delusional state and move in a forward direction now, eh? Right? Mart, 
looking himself like a miniature, nodded. Yeah, young Evesdale, Motley said heartily. From under the table, he grabbed the butterfly net and tossed it down to the young cat. When I was dealing with a shitty guardian, I'd exhume my feelings by going to catch Lepidoptera. Oh, and, he added, if there are any particularly alluring butterflies flitting around the very edge of the fog, such as, say, the golden birdwing, Troitus acus, well, so long as you don't step in yourself and cause further harm, Motley banged a balled-up paw against the rail. Why not stick your butterfly net into the mist and reel in a golden birdwing? The black and white cat straightened. It does wonders for the spiritual system. A light finally dawned on Evesdale. I was suddenly on fire to jot something in the journal. Not the one you have before you, but the book of scientific observation. Even if I'd be trapped in Franzia for the rest of my days, so God should will it, I would solve this. The butterfly net ensconced in Evesdale's claw, he nodded and strode away. With some emotion, Motley gazed at the young cat exiting the atrium and going on a path of life separate from the father, with, in fact, keen emotion in Motley's eye. A better outcome, he said, and I was at a loss to his meaning. I was sitting on the hill, near the edge which overlooked the fog. My sextant and journal of scientific observations rested on my knee. I was about to undergo jottings when a voice behind me said, Two things, good sir. I turned and it was Motley. We embraced. First, he said, Puppy Chow. The cat handed me a bag. I believe this is what you are looking for. I thanked him and took a scoop. Wonderful. Second, Motley said, this. And I reeled back at what he held. It was the book, the green volume from the library which I'd been interrupted from reading. I feel a little bit responsible for taking you away from your vital perusing. Motley handed me the octavo, so I snuck it out. Hey, after everything that's happened, I figure what the library doesn't know isn't gonna hurt him. Besides, I can always, if caught, blame the foreigner. We laughed. You might, Motley said, want to look at the section you'd dog-eared. I opened. The sentence near the bottom of the recto began, just as I recalled. It is obvious that with this we can surmise that to those who were not in Franzia at the time of the inciting, those persons might, upon returning to the mist from whence they came, experience, to put it bluntly, trembling, I turned the page, and the sentence continued, no or little adverse effects from the fog, unlike those of us who were in Franzia at the time of the commencement of the Cirques. Talk about a lousy way to structure the prose, huh? Motley said. I wouldn't blame her. She's been through a lot and is still in college. Overcome with excitement, I embraced Motley again and then, before he could stop me, ran directly into the skine of smoke. The look on the rotund cat's face when I came back totally unscathed was wonderful to behold. Section The Last I was alone now. After handing him some documents I'd created the night before, which I hoped might be of use eventually, I convinced Motley Cat to go and be the means through which all my friends could learn I was returning home. It should be a delight to bring Liza her puppy chow, and the bog barons can be transformed into something unsurpassed with what I had inside me now. But still, I had to complete my jottings. First, I traced all back to John Lithbraid and what he'd taught me. Something had finally come clear. To put it bluntly, 
It seemed all but undeniable that the ones separated from the line can be either wretched and hateful, or cheering and good-mannered. Beware them all. And among this, the exact same compartments exist on the other side. That those connected to the line, I mean, can be cheering and good-mannered, like a large, pleasant shape covered in motley patches of white or black, or wretched and hateful, like a thin, ragged crook, the color of cloud and lightning. And, perhaps, for those two types who both sit in the latter condition of proximity, perhaps these two types, by way of being extremes, are more than connected. Thrumming with an excited grasp beyond Lord our God, I pulled forth the sextant and journal of scientific discovery, and my quill spattered. What I had to write was simple. I have found the line. I shut the journal. Homeward ho! As I plunged slowly into the mist, throwing ash in my wake, I heard behind me a dialogue. Two cats had come to the borderland where I'd emerged, to have a chat. They couldn't see me, nor I them. Altogether, it strikes one as clear that you and I have some sort of misapprehension in common, said a horrible, ravaged voice. The lifting of the fog. The freeing of Franzia. Silence. It is what I want, said the voice of a woman. Not a cat, but a woman. Hattie Braid. And yet... Yeah, it's what I'm afraid of. As soon as Robert leaves, he leaves, and that's it. Same for the younger Evesdale. And what about you? You ask why I'm afraid. Well, the woman's voice grew soft. I guess rather I'm asking why bother at all, looking inside me or anyone if you so fear anybody looking inside you. I began to make my way through the trees leaving the voices far, far behind. And what was said next was difficult to be sure of, if it were truly the reply, or the product of my own thought, as a remembrance routed by fantasy. Because, the ravaged voice, I believe, responded, I always fear what I dream. End of Episode 5 Jackson the Cat is written by Oak Edel and performed by me, Jason Everett. The theme music is Black Widow by Graham. Stay tuned for another exciting mystery. Until then...